Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that breathes life. And Lord, we know that you have said that your word will not return void. And so we ask this morning that that would be true. That you would take your word, you would shine it upon our minds and hearts, that we might walk in it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've given you a, an outline in your bulletin, um, just because we're going to be covering a bunch of verses this morning, so I, I would encourage you not to try to keep up with me in turning in your Bibles, or else you'll probably actually um, miss most of what I'm going to say. So I've given you that outline so that if you want, you can then look at those passages later today. And also, I, I just want to apologize for you. I realize it's quite cold in here. Uh, our furnace isn't working right now, and so... Lord willing, we'll have that fixed very soon, and if not, we will make sure to announce to bring your coats next Sunday. So about 11 years ago, I was at uh, an event, and it was, it was an event on basically outreach, how to reach your community, how to bless your community um, in Jesus' name, and they brought in this pastor to speak, and it was at a school event, so there was about 18 to 21 year olds, there was about 100 of us, and uh, this pastor came in and, and was sharing, and, and he had some good things to say. He, he talked a lot about all the things that they've done for their community, and not only that, um, the many things that they've allowed their building to be used for by the community. And he was sharing these things, and, and, and as I continued to listen, there started to come this concern in my heart because um, one of the things he kept saying was you know all these people who aren't Christians they they now like us and they now think we're cool and 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 they they they, they don't think we're weird anymore as Christians and as he continued to share I realized that his message to us was this and this is a famous quote but it's an awful quote Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's really what his message was to the group. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. In other words, he was saying that as Christians, we need to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, but we don't need to be the mouth of Jesus. So as he's sharing this and people are resonating with what he's saying, there came a time of Q&A. And when I was 18, I was a bit zealous and probably a little bit arrogant. And, um, but I was also concerned. And so I raised my hand and I simply asked him this question. Do you ever tell these people that you're trying to bless, do you ever tell them about Jesus? Do you ever actually tell them the gospel? Do you evangelize them? And his response was, well, we don't want to force Jesus on people. Now, my response to him was, well, thank you for defining evangelism as forcing Jesus on people. I guess that by that definition, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul and Peter, Stephen the Martyr, Philip the Evangelist, Barnabas, Timothy, and Titus all forced Jesus upon 
people. Now, there was a moment of silence, and of which I cannot remember how he responded to that, but you can imagine the tension in this room, this young 18-year-old confronting this 30-something-year-old pastor with about, eight, about a room full of 100 um, students from 18 to 21. And part of the reason I confronted him was because he was speaking primarily to people who were still developing their thinking about the Bible. And I believe he was not only misguiding those in the room, but he was actually disregarding the clear mission that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples, and therefore, by extension, he gave to his church. Matthew 28, 18-20 is the Great Commission before Jesus ascends, and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Barna did a current survey of evangelicals in America on the importance of evangelism. And though you should never take these surveys with complete accuracy, It is interesting and also concerning what they discovered, especially among millennials, my generation. One of the questions on the survey was this, is it wrong to evangelize people of different beliefs with the hope to see them embrace your faith? That was the question. Is it wrong to evangelize people of different beliefs with the hope to see them embrace your faith? A staggering 47% of evangelical millennials said, yes, it's wrong. Now, I can think of a, a handful of reasons for why this is happening, even in the church. One, poor biblical teaching, but I also think the rise of pluralism. There's so much diversity in belief because of the globalization of the world that how, how could you truly believe that your faith is true and others are not. Not only this, the the privatization of faith. In other words, our secular culture is okay with you being a Christian and believing what you believe. What they're not okay with is thinking that you should be telling others about your faith. You can have a private faith, a personal faith, but it's not for you to share with others. In other words, you shouldn't be convincing people of your beliefs while they don't realize that they are doing that to you by telling you you shouldn't be telling people about your beliefs. Not only that, we live in a culture where, in in one sense, relativism, when it comes to truth, is rampant. So you'll hear lots of people, if you watch some entertainment shows or whatever, you'll you'll hear lots of people, um, like uh, on America's Got Talent, that the judges will often say to the, to the people performing, you need to live your truth. Not the truth. Your truth. You see, that there's a thing called your truth, but there's not a thing that's true for everyone. And needless to say, the, these ideas have impacted Christians when it comes to the idea of sharing their faith, proclaiming the gospel to other people. 
And it's of great importance as Christians that we be faithful to what Jesus has called his people to. The church of Jesus Christ has been given a mission. We've been called to be witnesses for Jesus. We've been called to testify to the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ for a lost and dying world. In Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, Jesus says to his disciples and, and the other, not just the apostles, but the disciples that were with him, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the book of Acts is really the beginning of the unfolding of seeing the gospel advance from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And you could say that the book of Acts is still unfolding. The advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to press on. In one sense, whenever the gospel reaches another area, another people, another page is added to the book of Acts. See, as the church of Jesus Christ, we've been invited to participate in the continued mission of seeing the gospel advance in our world, both locally and internationally. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fifth mark of a Christ-honoring church. The fifth mark of a Christ-honoring church. If you haven't been with, here with us before, we, we're doing a series on the marks of a Christ-honoring church. So if you want to listen to the other marks that we've already covered, you can go to the church website and the sermons are recorded on there. So the fifth mark of a Christ-honoring church is this. A biblical understanding and commitment to evangelism. And for clarity, I broke this message down into questions. What is evangelism? Are all Christians called to evangelize? How should we evangelize? What defines successful evangelism versus unsuccessful evangelism? And why should we evangelize? So number one, what is evangelism? And I think part of the way to answer this is to uh, answer it in the negative, what evangelism isn't. So first, evangelism isn't forcing Jesus upon people. A lot of people have this negative idea that, that evangelism, is, evangelism is trying to coerce people. That's not evangelism. We know this from, from Mark number 4, which we looked at two weeks ago, biblical conversion, that we actually don't have the power to convert anybody. We don't have the power to argue anyone into becoming a Christian. No mere argument can save anyone. Because as sinful humans, we need more than simply a change of thinking. We need God, as we looked at two weeks ago, to remove the blindness. We need God to breathe life into the deadness of humanity. We need God to rescue us from our sin. So evangelism can't be forcing Jesus upon people or imposing Jesus upon people. Now I know that there are sometimes Christians who aren't very kind when they evangelize. 
But to evangelize in and of itself is not to impose or to force Jesus upon people. You cannot make anyone a Christian. Evangelism is simply loving and proclaiming, telling others what God has done for sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Secondly, evangelism evangelism isn't merely loving people. As Christians, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And though loving people is essential in our evangelism, merely loving someone isn't evangelism. In other words, you can love and care for someone and meet their needs, which are all wonderful and good things, which ought to be done by us, yet that is never evangelism in itself. It is being faithful to what Jesus called us to, to love our neighbors and our enemies. But evangelism requires proclamation. It requires telling another person what God has done for sinners through Jesus. Thirdly, evangelism is not social action or political action. It's good to be involved in social and political change. We ought to, as Christians, stand against injustice, stand against things like human trafficking and abortion and, and racism and in many other forms of social sins. But to be doing those things isn't evangelism. I pray that we would have more William Wilberforces in the world. That God would raise up more men and women like him who would take on some of the social evils of our day, just like he took on slavery in England. Christian individuals who will stand for justice and fight against injustice to see change. But being involved in those things isn't evangelism, though it might grant opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. You see, evangelism is primarily about our vertical relationship to God. We need to be reconciled to God. Whereas social and political action is primarily about our horizontal relationship with other humans. Both are important, but evangelism is fundamentally about being made right with God. So evangelism isn't forcing Jesus on people. It's not merely loving people. It's not social or political action. So what is it? Well, here's a definition that I think will help us. To evangelize is to spread the good news. What's the good news? That Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures And that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. So to evangelize is to spread, to make known the good news of Jesus. News has to be told. Imagine if you were a news anchor and your boss told you, I want you to do the news this evening at 6 p.m., but do it without using words. That wouldn't be the news. It would be a bunch of pictures maybe, but it wouldn't be the news. News has to be proclaimed. 
Evangelism it is to tell others what God has done for sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus and then calling people to repent and believe upon Jesus. This is what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, 46 to 47. After he appears to them after the resurrection, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It needs to be proclaimed, made known. The Apostle Paul describes the ministry that he was given from Christ as the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, this is what he says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then hear this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So this ministry of reconciliation is the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ. And catch this. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? When, when we as the ambassadors of Christ proclaim Christ, represent him to the world, God is actually making his appeal to the world through you and I. And so you, you could summarize evangelism as this. Evangelism is God making his appeal to sinners to be reconciled to God through the mouth of his ambassadors. It's calling sinners to be reconciled to God. So that's what evangelism is. Secondly, are all Christians called to evangelize? The answer is yes, but. Yes, but. We'll get to the but soon. Yes, all Christians are called to evangelize. When you read the book of Acts, you discover it wasn't just the apostles who shared their faith. It was ordinary Christians proclaiming Jesus to people. In Acts 4, 29-31, which, which Josh read for us, the apostles return to the church after they've been told not to proclaim Christ's name. And, and we're told that they, they as a church begin to pray. And this is what we read. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, it's possible here that that word servants is simply referring to the apostles. But I don't think it is based upon what we see next. So, Lord, we ask that you would... Your servants would continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just the apostles. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All that were in that room were filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter 8, persecution breaks out. Saul has just approved of the, the murder of Stephen. And we read this about the Christians in Jerusalem who, because of the persecution, were scattered. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered. The apostles are remaining in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, that's not the apostles, went about preaching the word. In Acts 11... 19 to 21, were reintroduced to those who were scattered. And this is what we read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So there's example after example in the book of Acts where ordinary Christians are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And also in 1 Peter 3, 5, we're told that in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So yes, all Christians are called to share, proclaim their faith. But that doesn't mean we're all called to evangelize in the same way and to the same degree. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. It's easy to compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul, but I don't think that's what Paul intended for us to do. If Paul's your standard for what every Christian should be doing in regards to evangelism, or what a typical evangelistic life should look like, then we are all failures, and we should all be very discouraged. But we're not all called to be the Apostle Paul. Paul was given a specific task from the Lord Jesus that he would be the primary means by which the gospel would reach the Gentiles. And depending on who you are, some of us might evangelize more than others and in unique ways. Yet we're all called to be witnesses for Jesus in the context that God has placed us. You see, it's so easy to think of evangelism as this black and white thing and, and, and you're either doing it or you're not doing it and you have to do it this way or else you're not doing it. But I don't see that in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 12, Paul lists for the church the gifts of people that God has given for the sake of the church. And this is what we read. And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or you could say shepherd teachers, which is what I would be. So Christ gave the church apostles, the prophets, the evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So one of the gifts of the church that God has established is that he would raise up evangelists, individuals who've been gifted by God to reach people with the gospel. They have an ability that is unique. I've I've known a few of these individuals, and it just seems like when they interact with people, people come to faith. When these individuals share their faith, God does something in unique ways. But I want you to see that not only are these evangelists called to proclaim the gospel, but they're also called in Ephesians 4 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, God raises up evangelists in his church to equip the saints, that is every Christian, in being more effective in their evangelism. So not having the gift of evangelism doesn't excuse you from evangelizing. I've been primarily gifted by God to pastor and teach his word, to be a shepherd and to teach his word. I have found that I'm most effective in the Christian life in helping Christians mature in their faith and understanding of God's word. But that doesn't excuse me from the task of sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. You see, evangelism might not be your natural gifting, but it doesn't mean you're not called to evangelize. Your gifts might be service, administration, prayer, hospitality, and you might give the majority of your time to those things, but you're also called to be a witness for Christ. See, I used to think that every Christian should evangelize the exact same way and the same amount. But I've discovered that's just not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Imagine if I as a pastor evangelized as much as the Apostle Paul. I would be a really bad shepherd to all of you. But I have a task to shepherd and to teach you the word of God. You see, we are all called to evangelize, but in different ways and by different means and different amounts. I have a a friend named Josh who lives in the States, and uh, he's an incredibly gifted evangelist. I've got to spend some time with him, and, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, but it wouldn't be surprising if he evangelized several people a day. That that's who he is. And I have seen conversations where I think if I was having that conversation, it would have gone horrible. (laughs) But he has this way with people, and he's able to help them think through the gospel. And and many people have come to faith through him. But not only that, many people, many Christians have become better at sharing their faith because they've seen him do it, and they've learned from him. He is, I think, what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that evangelist who equips the saints for the work of the ministry. But it would be wrong of me to expect all of you to be like Josh. 
and to think that you're somehow failing because you're not like him, because you don't share your faith every single day. But it would also be wrong to think that because there are people like Josh that you don't need to share your faith. You see, you need, I need, to be the best seed thrower that you can be. You need to be the best seed thrower that you can be. And the only way you can be the best seed thrower that you can be is to throw seed. And this leads us to our third question. How should we evangelize? So we've seen what evangelism is. We've seen that all Christians are called to share their faith. Thirdly, how should we evangelize? There was a time when I thought that every Christian should be doing street evangelism. And if you didn't, you were in sin. Thankfully, I've matured in my thinking. Some of us can and should do street evangelism. Some of us should be open to learning to do street evangelism. But God is far more diverse in the way he reaches people, in the ways he uses each of us for evangelistic purposes. So I want to give you two ideas when it comes to the how of evangelism. I could say a lot more than this, but let's just start here. First, I want to speak about individual evangelism. And what I mean by that is not, you must only evangelize by yourself. Rather, what I mean is, we've each been given a mission field. Each of us have been given a gospel context, which God has placed us in. Neighbors, friends, co-workers, family members. And each of us need to be faithful to the people that God has placed in our lives by where we live, who our family members are, who we work with. If you think that the only reason God has given you the job you have is so that you can make money and pay your bills, you're not understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's your mission field. God has providentially brought you those people into your lives. So what might this look like? Well, it might mean going into work with the purpose of actually getting to know your coworkers and building relationships with them so that you can then go out for coffee with the hope of sharing your faith with them or having them in your home. It might mean intentionally connecting with the parents of other kids on your kid's soccer team. It might mean writing that awkward letter to your brother or sister who doesn't know Jesus and explaining the gospel and pleading with them to turn to Christ. It might mean running a neighborhood barbecue so that you can meet your neighbors and over time have deeper conversations with them about spiritual matters. It might mean going to a mall and handing out gospel tracts to people and getting into conversations with strangers. It might mean starting a Bible study with some of your Christian friends, but also inviting your unbelieving friends to come. There's a plethora of ways to do evangelism as a Christian. But what I want you to notice in all the examples I just gave is that they are person to person and people to people. There's a a book called The Gospel Blimp. And it's it's a satire. It's, It's almost a way to kind of mock the way that 
I shouldn't say mock's probably too strong a word, but rebuke the way that a lot of churches have thought about evangelism. There's a, you know, a few Christians in their backyard, they're, they're having a meal together and, and, uh, and the neighbor to them is also in their backyard and they're, they're having a meal and drinking some beers and spending some time together and, and the Christians begin to have a conversation. What, what's the most effective way to reach our neighbor just over the fence? And so there's, they're discussing all these possible ways of how they could best reach their neighbor. And one of them sees in the sky this blimp. And he says, guys, I have the best way to reach our neighbor. Let's get the blimp like that. Let's rent one. And what we can do is then have printed on the blimp John 3.16 so that we can reach as many as people as possible with this blimp. We'll put it up in the sky and everyone will see the gospel blimp. And if they see it, then, then they might respond in faith. Now you know the point. What's the best way to actually reach the neighbor? To put all that money into putting that blimp up into the sky? and No. We know that the best way to reach the neighbor is to go over and welcome and introduce yourself to your neighbor. To get to know them. To have them in your home. And to share Christ with them. That's the best way. That's the most effective way. See, it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for special gospel events and, and programs but that shouldn't be the primary means of how we do evangelism as a church. We ought to be a relationship-based church rather than a program-based church. So for the first idea about how to do evangelism is discovering what your mission field is and being faithful to that mission field. We all live in different areas of Toronto. We all work in different areas of Toronto. God has placed you in those areas to be light to a dark world. A second idea on how to do evangelism is this, corporate evangelism. And what I mean by that is this, our corporate experience as a church is to be evangelistic in nature. When I plan these services, the purpose of our Sunday morning gatherings and Wednesday evening is primarily for the edification of believers. It is the corporate worship service of the church. But what is interesting is that what the church often needs, unbelievers need. In other words, I preach the gospel not only to unbelievers every Sunday, but to Christians because they need to hear it again and again and again. We gather as the church in our weekly meetings. We're, we're seeking to image forth the gospel by all that we do and say. When we confess our sins as a corporate people, that is evangelistic in nature. When we sing songs about Christ and his death, gospel songs, that is evangelistic in nature. When we pray, when the scriptures are read and proclaimed, when we take communion, it is evangelistic in nature. When we go out of our way to love one another, 
It is evangelistic in nature. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, when we gather as the people of God, I want you to actually see our gatherings as a part of your evangelistic ministry. How we love one another on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or at a potluck fellowship lunch will either commend the gospel or will bring criticism to the gospel. Deborah puts it this way, live a life of committed love to the other members of your local church as a fundamental part of your own sanctification and of your evangelistic ministry. Our individual lives alone are not a sufficient witness. Our lives together as church communities are the confirming echo of our witness. Our individual lives and our relationships to one another ought to commend the gospel to people. See, listen, you hinder the evangelistic efforts of your church when you don't love the members of your church. When you're in disagreement with another member, you are bringing criticism to the gospel. So we've defined evangelism. We've seen that all Christians are called to evangelize. And we've looked at how the how of evangelism. Number four, what defines successful evangelism and versus unsuccessful evangelism? What makes it successful and what makes it unsuccessful? The answer is simple. The answer is faithfulness. What determines whether or not you are being successful in evangelizing is whether or not you are being faithful to do it. We don't have the power to save a single person. And that can be depressing, but it also can be liberating. Sometimes when I've shared the gospel and, and the person didn't respond the way I was hoping, it's so easy to think if, if I had just said this or, or if I didn't say this or, or, or if I had just done this. But that's putting all the emphasis on me and my abilities. Evangelism isn't successful based upon the results or how clearly you've articulated the gospel. God simply wants you to be faithful in sharing the gospel and leaving the results to him. God has used the worst explanations of the gospel to save people. And he has used the best explanations of the gospel to save people. As Dever states, we cannot finally judge the correctness of what we do in evangelism by the immediate response that we see. Your success in evangelism, in evangelism isn't determined by whether the seed grows, but by whether you've tossed the seed. We have one task. We're to be seed tossers. God has the other task. He's to grow the seed. 
And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to get better at, at proclaiming our faith and being able to answer people's questions, but it does mean that we shouldn't put all our confidence in how well we evangelize. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul had a ton of people who not only didn't respond in faith, but they also responded in hostility. Based upon some Christians and their understanding of what successful evangelism is, the Apostle Paul and Jesus would have been failures. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, Paul calls us, the church, the people of God, the aroma of Christ. This is what he says. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So Paul says, you and I, we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, as Christians, being the aroma of Christ, we give off a fragrance. And it should be the same fragrance no matter what. It's the same message. But to some, that fragrance is like death to them. They're perishing. To others, that fragrance is life. The message is the same, but there's two different responses. And just because one response is death doesn't mean you failed in proclaiming Christ. And just because one responds in life doesn't mean that you've succeeded. Faithfulness defines whether you have succeeded in sharing your faith. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 8, he's dealing with the Corinthian church and the church in Corinth is following different individuals, right? Some, some follow Apollo, some follow Paul. And this is what Paul says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I actually believe that God has assigned to each of us divine appointments. Some of us more, some of us less. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You know, some of us might just be the planted one. We might just be like Paul who just plants the seed but we might not ever see the growth. In, from the time I came to faith until I'm 31, in all my years of doing evangelism, I've seen one person, I know of one person who's come to faith through me sharing the gospel. And that can be discouraging. But what's more discouraging is when I'm not faithful to it. But if I can simply be the seed planter, where I might not ever see one person come to faith, but if I can be the first step in the chain, that's worth it. And there's probably going to be people that I will see in the new heavens and new earth who I never thought would have ever been there. 
But they will probably come to me or come to you and they will say, you know, I, I was hostile to that, that time you shared the gospel with me, but that day there was a seed planted in my heart. See, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to what? The results? No. According to his labor. You'll receive your reward according to whether or not you fulfilled your labor. Be faithful in the labor that God has entrusted to you and leave the results in his hands. So, we've defined what evangelism is. We've defined what all, Christian, all Christians are called to evangelize. We've looked at the how. We've defined what is successful evangelism. Finally, why should we evangelize? What are the motives for why we ought to evangelize? What should be the reasons for why we share our faith? Well, there's lots, but let me quickly give you three. The first motive is this, a genuine desire to be obedient to our Lord Jesus. Christ commanded his people to make disciples, and out of a desire to obey him, not from guilt, but from love, we ought to share our faith. I don't want anyone leaving here with an ambition to share the gospel from a place of guilt. I want everyone to evangelize because of a deep desire to love and obey Jesus. Trevin, Trevin Wax says this, You see, the root cause of our lack of engagement in God's mission is not a missions problem, but a gospel problem. We demonstrate by our inaction that we no longer marvel at grace. We are unaffected by the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. Could, could I suggest to you that if, if you have no desire to share your faith, or if you don't share your faith at all, that it's possible that you might not truly know the love of Christ. Because Paul says that the love of Christ compels him. It controls him. Or at least you, you might have grown cold to the preciousness of Christ's love, to the treasure that he is. Could that be possible? The second motive that should drive our evangelism is a love for the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He loved the lost. He loved the lost with such passion that he was willing to die for the lost. He had compassion on the crowds and he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. I think a really good question to ask yourself is this. Does the way that the lost live and behave anger you? Or does it cause you to have pity because people are so lost? I was confronted with that this week as I was thinking about this. That I often find myself angry at people who are lost for the ways that they live and the ways that they think rather than having the heart of compassion and pity because they are so lost. 
Are you a Jonah or are you the Apostle Paul? See, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 reveals his heart for his fellow Israelites who don't know Christ. And he writes, honestly, some of the hardest, most difficult words to grasp. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Hear his heart? Great sorrow and unceasing anguish that he himself, he wishes that he himself were cut off, completely cut off from Christ, if it would mean that his fellow Israelites would come to Christ. A love for the loss. You know, one of my concerns that I have is that I think that a lot of Christians are mainly motivated in regards to evangelism is because they don't want their friends or their family members or their co-workers to go to hell. I think a good majority of Christians think that the main reason to share one's faith is so that people don't go to hell. And it's definitely a biblical motivation. The Bible makes that clear, that you ought to warn people of the final judgment of God. But is that the only motive? Imagine for a moment that the doctrine of hell didn't exist. Okay? I'm going to be clear. It exists. Okay? We believe as a church that the Bible teaches that there is a real place called hell. It is the place of God's judgment. But imagine for a moment that hell didn't exist. Would you still have motive to evangelize? Would you still have reason to proclaim Christ if hell didn't exist? Is them knowing Jesus Christ and the treasure that he is enough? Do you love the lost in such a way that you don't just want them to go to hell, but that you want them to know the joy of knowing Jesus? That he is everything their hearts truly need. That he alone can truly satisfy them. See, when I think of, of my loved ones, of, of my brother who once was in rebellion against God, it wasn't just that I didn't want him to face God's judgment, though that is part of it. It's that I wanted him to know the God who could truly bring him joy and everlasting peace. You see, the New Testament describes people who don't know Christ as lost and without hope and without God in the world. They have no hope. Imagine living in this world, the current world that we are living in, without any true, substantial hope. And we, as the people of God, have the hope that they truly need. So we need to love the loss that should drive us. Thirdly, and most importantly, we should be driven to share our faith for the glory and exaltation of God. This is the driving motive for all things in the scripture. We proclaim Christ to make his name known. We proclaim Christ for his renown. As John Piper states, missions exist because worship doesn't. 
The Christian heart longs to see Christ magnified, honored, treasured, not only in their own hearts, but in the hearts of others. Does this drive you to see others treasuring, magnifying, exalting, and bringing glory to Jesus? Does this drive you to see Jesus treasured in people's lives? These are the reasons for why we share our faith, obedience, and love for Jesus, love for the lost, and for God's glory. And if you are actively looking for opportunities to share your faith and taking those opportunities, I want to encourage you to keep going, to do so more and more. But if you're here this morning and this hasn't been a priority in your life, the natural response might be, I'm just going to commit to go evangelize. But I would suggest to you there's another step before that that you probably need to wrestle with your first love. You probably need to wrestle with your love for Christ. To ask God to forgive you for neglecting this call, but also to ask God to reignite in you a love for Christ that desires to make him known. It needs to start there before anything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that each of us would deal seriously with you this morning. That we wouldn't just be hearers, but that we would also be doers of your word. And Lord, for any that's here this morning that's feeling convicted, they, they want to share their faith, but they haven't, or whatever the reason may be, Lord, I pray that you by your spirit would create in them a deep, overwhelming sense of awe of who Christ is, of a love for him, and that the love of Christ would control them, and that that would be the driving force behind truly being a witness for Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be faithful as a church to be your witnesses for the glory of Christ's name. And Lord, we want to see people come to faith but we know that it's you who saves. And so, Lord, we ask, save, O God. Save. Draw people to yourself. Make your name known. Shine in the hearts of people. Help them to see all that Christ is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.